Great, thanks, Matt. Uh, it's lovely to see you, uh, especially if you're visiting us for the first time. Um, I'd love to see you if you are a regular here as well. Uh, we're in uh, a series in Exodus. We've been doing uh, the first half of Exodus over the last uh, couple of months. Uh, so if you're visiting us, you're, you're reaching us just as we're beginning to finish. Um, Exodus is a story of how God rescues the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, how God rescues them uh, from a tyrant, a king, God's Old Testament people, uh, out of slavery. And uh, we're in chapter 18 of Exodus, and this is the last, like the last chapter uh, of this stage of the story in the Bible. Uh, what we've been seeing recently over the last few chapters uh, in Exodus is that God is teaching his people uh, what it means uh, to belong to him, uh, what it means to be saved by him, uh, what it means to be uh, rescued and ruled by him. We've been seeing that in chapter 16 and 17, and we continue to see that now uh, in chapter 18. So if you've got a Bible, uh, do open it to chapter 18. I think it's also uh, printed in the service sheets, if you've got a service sheet as well. Matt's prayed for us, so let me dive in and read uh, chapter 18. Chapter 18, Jethro, uh, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out and, uh, to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the, the good uh, that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly uh, with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And the next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing um, for, for the people, he said, well, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, 
what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I'll give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statues and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads of the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Now, there are two uh, important things for any group of people to consider, whether it's a business or a a family or a nation. Two important things, how it treats people outside its group and how it functions uh, inside the group. So a business uh, will have a human human resources manager to, to deal with people inside the group and a public relations manager to deal with communications with other businesses. A nation will have a home office to deal with things inside the country and a foreign office to deal with things outside the country, to deal with other countries. And if you have a family, if you're parents, if you have children, then you'll need to teach them how to treat each other inside the family, how to treat their siblings, and how to treat uh, people outside your little family family unit, uh, strangers and friends and so on. Uh, And the church, well, the church is also a group of people. So we're saying when God saves a person, saves a Christian, uh, he saves them uh, into a people, into a family. When you become a Christian, you become part of a people automatically. And through his word, uh, God shows us something of how we're meant to treat people outside the church, those who aren't part of this family, and how the inside of the church is meant to work, how we're meant to function and we get a glimpse of that in this passage. We've got, we've got a, a, a pagan Midianite priest. He's not an Israelite. And he's coming. as He's an outsider. And Moses treats him in a particular way. And, and then he comes, this priest, and he also helps organise the inside uh, of the people. So I say, if you're new to church, if you're a visitor here, maybe you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, I hope... Uh, This morning, you uh, glimpse something or understand something of what we're about here. It might also be that you're a new Christian or you're a younger, shall we say, Christians, and you have a good understanding of what it means to be saved by Christ, what it means to to put your faith in him. I hope this morning you understand something of what it means to be part of his church, a part of his people, 
It also might be that you're maybe an older, more experienced uh, Christian, and you've heard many things, so many things, in fact, about the church and what it is. I hope this morning it brings to you some well, clarity and reminds you of if you like, the basic building blocks of what this church is about and what we see here in Exodus 18. Uh, the passage is roughly divided into two halves. You've got verses 1 to 12, where Jethro comes, Moses' father-in-law, and there we're learning something about how to treat people outside the church. And in the second half, verses 13 to 27, uh, we're being taught something about how, how the inside of the church works, how we function. Uh, so verses 1 to 12, our first major point this, this morning, first major take-home, right? uh, to people outside the church, right? we are to proclaim God's rescue. Right? We are to speak about what he has done. We are to talk to our friends, talk to our friends and our, our family about all his works. We are to proclaim his rescue. That's what we see Moses do here in verse 8 to his father-in-law. He begins proclaiming God's rescue. We've actually met, if you've been with us all the way through Exodus, we've actually met Jethro before. He comes into chapter 4, uh, before Moses goes to the Israelite people and rescues them out of slavery. So he's coming after that, and he's hearing for the first time all uh, that God had done for the Israelites. And he comes to Moses with his, Moses' family, uh, with Zipporah, Moses' wife, with Moses' children, uh, his oldest son Gershom, and his youngest son Eliezer. We're not quite sure how they end up being with Jethro. Um, it says here that Moses sent them back. Don't know why Moses sent them back. Maybe, maybe for safekeeping because he knew the way of the Israelites is going to be dangerous. But anyway, they're with they're with Jethro and, and they come uh, to Moses. Uh, and when they come, Moses obviously loves this man. You see that in, in verse seven when, when Jethro comes and says, "Here I am." Moses comes out and meets him and bows down before him and kisses him. Uh, and asks after his welfare, and Jethro asks after uh, Moses' welfare. Uh, this is a, a, an affectionate uh, reunion. But Moses' greatest desire is not just to find out how Jethro is doing. Moses' greatest desire is to proclaim God's rescue to his father-in-law. In verse 8, he sits him down and he tells him of all that the Lord has done for him and for Israel. I want you to imagine how, how it went as he sits down and speaks to his father-in-law. He says to him, for our sake, for our sake, God has shot down the Egyptians with plague after plague. For our sake, he has turned the Nile into a river of blood. And he struck down the Egyptians with gnats and, uh, and flies. Uh, and locusts, for our sake, he, he struck down their firstborn children so that we might be freed. And when Pharaoh and the Israelite, Pharaoh and his army, sorry, gave chase, uh, he swallowed them up, swallowed them up in the, in the Red Sea. Uh, and all the time, Moses says, all the time he kept us safe. When he struck down the firstborn, uh, we were sheltered under the blood of a lamb. And when he swallowed up the Egyptians in the Red Sea, he led us through that same sea on dry ground and safely out the other side. And since, Moses continues, and since God has 
rescued us, there have been many hard things in the way. We've suffered from lack of water and lack of food. Uh, Enemies have come and attacked us. But God has always delivered us, Jethro. God has always delivered us. Even today, when we're hungry, he rains down bread, manna they call it, down on us to feed us. At a time when we're thirsty, and he cracked open a rock and water poured out for us to drink. And recently, just before this, uh, the Malachite army came and attacked us and God fought for us. He is our strength and our refuge. And as Moses proclaims God's rescue, he reveals what God is like, doesn't he? Children, how do you know that Harry Potter, uh, the wizard, how do you know that he is brave? Well, because he's willing to face up uh, to Voldemort, who is terrifying and evil. Or how do you know that uh, Winnie the Pooh and the bear is greedy? Well, because when he goes to Rabbit's house, he goes and eats all of Rabbit's feet, and he can't get back out through the same door that he went in. He gets stuck. It's by what people do that we often know what they're like. And so by hearing what God has done for the Israelites in verse 8, Jethro learns what God is like. In verses 9 to 12, uh, we see him respond. So in verses 9, he, he rejoices in the goodness of God. He rejoices in all the good that God has done. All the goodness of God in protecting his people in love. All the goodness of God in guiding his people through the desert. All the goodness of God in shepherding them towards the promised land. And he rejoices. This is, this is a deep, this is a heartfelt joy bubbling up and out of him because now he knows... In verse 9, now he knows that the God of this universe is a good God. And then verses 10 and 11, he confesses the greatness of God. He says, now I know, verse 11, now I know the Lord God is greater than all the other gods. Because I've heard of how he rescued his people from slavery to the Egyptians and brought them here. Blessed be the Lord, he says in verse 10. Blessed be the Lord, praise him. Now I know that he is great. Now that I know that he is good. And because of that, I will come and I will worship him. That's what he does in verse 12. He brings sacrifices. This is an act of worship. He brings sacrifices and worships with God's people with the elders of God's people. I wonder if you see the pattern there. Moses proclaims God's rescue, all the Lord has done. So Jethro knows what God is like. And so is drawn in to worship him. And this is our pattern as a church. This is our PR program. This is our foreign office policy. We proclaim what God has done for us 
in Christ, how he has rescued us, so that people come to know who the true and living God is and are drawn in to worship him. God has set us aside for that purpose. He set us aside to, to be a light uh, to the nations. So the knowledge of him, of what he's truly like, spreads out across the whole world. And we have a better rescue than these Israelites, don't we? We can speak of the rescue that we have in Christ. What the whole of Scripture lays out for us, what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Uh, How can we keep silent about him? How can we not talk about him? We live in a world that is crying out to know the God that we already know. People who have been rejected throughout their lives are crying out to know a God who will accept them, a God who is love. And we know that God because we know that God, in his love, sent his son to die for us. Or people who faced roughness and hardship throughout their lives are crying out to know a God who is generous. And we know a God who is generous, who's seen that generosity in Christ. Or people who who carry in their lives their sin and their shame and their guilt are crying out to know a God who will forgive them. And we know that God in Christ at the cross where our shame and our guilt and our sin is taken and the burden taken from us. Or people, as most people do, who fear death as it approaches them are crying out to know a God who would deliver them from death. And we know that God. A God who rose raised his son from the grave so that death is swallowed up forever. Sophie was a friend of mine at Durham University. Uh, We were at the same college, uh, same uh, course even, and she wasn't a Christian. Uh, So I invited her along to a a Christian union event. I offered her a swap. She was a vegan, so I offered to go to one of her vegan events. She came to one of my Christian events. It was, um, it was a great sacrifice, but I was willing to make it. And um, uh, something to know about Sophie is she worked incredibly hard when I knew her in the first year of uni. As freshers, she would uh, often work 16 hour days. She'd often stay up past midnight making notes on that day's lectures. And I think, in many ways, reflecting on that, it'd be interesting to know what. She would say herself, but in many ways, I think she was enslaved to academic success. And she wanted to prove her intellectual prowess, prove herself to the world. And as a result of that, she was deeply anxious about failing and falling short. But that night, at that event, I think everything changed for her. And because she began to realise who God was, she began to realise that God is someone who liberates those who are enslaved. He is a God who, who gives out, he gives and gives and gives. Uh, it's not a God who takes and drains people. She began to realise that in his arms, and she might be free from anxiety, free from fear, free from guilt. I still remember 
I still remember talking to her after uh, the event uh, and knowing that there was clear joy in her voice, seeing it in her eyes. You know how sometimes people's eyes gleam when they're excited about something. She had that gleam because she had begun to realize who the God of the universe was. Four weeks later, she became a Christian, much to my joy. We have good news. We have good news in Christ to offer to people. Let us not keep silent as a church. Let us not keep silent in our families and our friends. Let us not keep silent among our, in our workplaces. Let us not keep silent. We've just been thinking about God's rescue in this first half, haven't we? And the Exodus is really a book of two halves. First half is all about the rescue, which we've just been thinking about, uh, up to uh, chapter 18. Second half, this is, uh, chapters 19 to 34, are all about God's rule. It's where God gives uh, his law. It's where he gives uh, the Ten Commandments. If you glance over a couple of pages, you'll see that the Ten Commandments then come in. God rescues his people in order to rule them. He, he saves them in order to, that they might come and serve them, which is good news, because he's a good and great God. And that pattern, being rescued and then being ruled, saving, being saved and then learning to serve, is reflected in this passage. The first half is all about being rescued. And the second half, verse 13 onwards, it is about his rule. So if the outward world, we are proclaiming God's rescue... In here, in the church, we are coming under God's rule. We are, as a people, seeking to serve the Lord God. We are seeking to understand how he wants us to to live. So in our passage, it shifts from from Jethro coming and confessing and worshipping. It shifts the next day, verse 13. And Moses is sitting around, and the Israelites are coming, gather around him, and he's judging them, it says. And morning, uh, from morning to evening, he's judging them. And Jethro says to him, Jethro says to him, what is this that you're doing for the people? What are you doing, Moses? What are you up to? And so Moses says, verse 15, the people come to me. They come to me to inquire of God. They want to know what God wants. And so, verse 16, Moses goes about trying to settle their disputes. He tries to tell them God's laws. He tries to make known to them uh, what God wants. So that they come under God and under God's rule. At this point, Jethro turns from being a recent convert uh, to counsellor, to giving advice. He says, and only only a father in law could be this blunt, he says, what you're doing is not good. What you're doing is not good. Why? Well, it's going to be a disaster for you, Moses. This is too much for you. Like, if you remember the Israelite people, there's perhaps two million of them. Two million people, all with problems and questions. And Moses tried to minister to all of them, well, he's going to burn out. But it's not only going to be a, disa- only going to be a disaster for Moses. He's also going to wear out the people. They need to have access to God in a way that won't require them to stand out outside in the hot sun hour after hour while their questions fester uh, and the problem, problems uh, slowly ferment. 
You can imagine um, if all the court cases in the UK had to be decided at, at, at one court by one judge, it would be mayhem, it would be carnage. Justice would never be done in this country. So Jethro goes about setting up a system to deal with a problem. And through this system, God's rule can extend to every individual Israelite. God's rule comes through his words, worth saying. So in verse 16, that's why he's making the statutes and the laws of God known. That's God's word to the Israelites. Now I want you to imagine the two million Israelite people a bit like sheep in a field, hungry sheep in a field that need to be fed. And the food they need to be fed on is God's word. And Jethro's system that he sets in place here feeds them. Moses, in verse 19 and 20, Moses is a bit like the gate, the gate through which God's word comes to his people. He's the one who can go to God, and he's the one who can bring God's word back to, uh, back to the people and teach them, it says, teach them how God wants them to live and what he wants them to do. Uh, but there are two million sheep in the fields. There's too many people for Moses to teach by himself. Uh, so this is where these chiefs, these workers come in in the passage. It says that Moses, uh, Jeffrey says to Moses that you should choose able men, verse 21, from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people, over the thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and tens. And let them judge the people at all times. So if Moses is the gate through which God's word comes to the Israelite people, then these chiefs, these workers, are a bit like shepherds, taking that word and spreading it out across the field so that every sheep is fed, so that God's rule comes to every individual Israelite. It's crucial to realise, I think, it's crucial to realise that God works in a similar way today. It's not exactly the same, obviously. Christ has come to us, so things have changed. We're no longer a nation. We are people gathered from every nation, every tongue. And we're not led by Moses anymore today. We're we're led by Christ, aren't we? Christ replaces Moses. So Moses' role in this passage is taken over by Christ. Christ is the great teacher of his people, it's worth, think, it's worth saying that if you think of Christ as merely alive 2,000 years ago, you need to think again. Christ is alive in heaven today, active, uh, and he's active in teaching his people uh, through his word, the Bible, and by his spirit. But Christ also appoints chiefs. He also appoints workers in his church today. Uh, the New Testament calls them elders. We have several elders in this church. We have three, in fact. And we're commanded by the New Testament to have them. I'm not an elder, by the way. I'm just in training as a minister. Um, and in many ways, uh, these elders are surprisingly similar to these chiefs in our passage. They have similar qualifications. So verse 21, uh, the qualifications of verse 21, the qualifications that we're told that elders have in the New Testament in chapters like 1 Timothy 3 are uh, surprisingly similar. So they're to be Uh, In the New Testament, it says that elders are to be above reproach. And here they are to be trustworthy. They're not to be lovers of money, it says. 
and here they are to hate a bribe. They are to be able to teach, and here they are to be able men. They have similar qualifications, they have similar jobs as well. They are the people who take God's word and feeds it to God's people, like shepherds taking hay bales and feeding it to their sheep. And so that God's rule extends to every person in his church. Now, we live in a time where we have all sorts of different access to God's words. And that's, that's a great blessing. That's good. Most of us will have a personal Bible which you can read day by day. And that's a great blessing. Most of us will be able to go online and watch talks and, and conferences uh, or go to conferences in person, hopefully, uh, sometime soon. We can gather together in little groups and, and read the Bible and study it with one another. And that's a great blessing, one which actually a lot of Christians throughout the ages won't have had. And yet, it does not change the fact, I think, that the primary way, primary way that God's word and his rule is meant to come to us is through the elders of the church. That's where we see the pattern here in Exodus 18. And so the New Testament calls us to respect them, calls us to listen to them, to pay attention to them, and to heed their wisdom. They're not just take or leave it as Christians. We can kind of listen to them if we want, but go and do our own thing if we don't really like what they say. They have a certain level of authority. And you may say to me, I think, in response to that, I feel a bit nervous about it. I feel nervous by the idea that someone has authority over me in the church. Or I feel unsettled by the idea that there are people who have the right uh, to input into my spiritual life. I think just two things I want to say to that. Two things. First, they're qualified. Uh, that's what the qualifications here are all about. They're not just random men. They fear God uh, and they're trustworthy and so on. Uh, many of them are elders, are trained to teach God's words. And it's also true that if they prove unfaithful, if they prove to be unqualified for the job, they can be removed from office if they start teaching heresy or, or corrupt, become corrupted by, by sin or getting loving money, they can be removed. So they're qualified for it. But the other thing I think, and more significantly for us, is they're a gift to us. People in authority are always a gift from God. So children, your parents, whether you like it or not, are a gift to you. They're given to you uh, help feed you, to teach you, to clothe you, to bring you up, to know Jesus, to know God. And similarly, uh, elders, these chiefs, these workers in God's church are a gift to us. It is a gift, can I say, to have men who pray for us day in and day out. You pray for us individually. So we're saying, if you're visiting this morning uh, and you're not part of this church yet, if you do come and join us as part of this church, there will be an elder praying for you week by week who is concerned and burdened with your spiritual welfare. It is a gift for us to have men who are willing to pour their energy and pour their time into God's word and studying it and uh, preaching it to us. It is a gift for us to have someone we can go to with our questions and with our problems and with our heartaches and they'll listen and they'll bring wise biblical counsel to us 
So let us treat them as a gift, as one of the primary ways and means that God comes to us by his words and rules us. Now, as we finish, I just want to draw back a little bit and try and glimpse something of what God is doing uh, through his church, as we've seen in, in this chapter. Now, I know, I know almost nothing about space out there, uh, but I like to imagine that there are kind of rocks hurling about randomly in the darkness uh, without direction. And they're hurling about, they have, they have nowhere to go, and they're in the cold and empty, and they're in the dark. Uh, but also know that in space there, are, there is uh, the sun, and there's a sun that is shining nicely today. It's full of light, it's full of warmth, it's full of glory. And again, I know nothing about the science and nothing about the physics, but I imagine that from time to time these directionless rocks come in contact with the sun and physics and gravity uh, pulls them in. Uh, to orbit and they once were directionless they once were in the dark but now they begin orbiting uh, the sun and isn't that something like what's going on in the church people in this world are a bit like rocks hurling around in the darkness without God without direction and God is our sun the one who is full of light and warmth and glory and through us through the witness of the church, they come in contact with us. And just like rocks that are drawn into orbit around our sun, they are drawn in to worship and to live for him. And they come in with us and like us begin to be ruled by God. And together we begin to to walk more and more uh, in his light to be warmed more and more by his warmth and to worship him in his glory. Let's pray. Father, give you great glory and praise and thanks just as Jeffrey does in this passage. We rejoice this morning that you are a good God and that you are a great God that has reached down in Christ and has rescued us and has brought us in to be part of your people. I give you thanks that now you rule us by your words and through, particularly through, as you've seen in this passage, through uh, elders, through men that you have appointed. I pray that day by day we're becoming more and more uh, under your rule and walking more and more in your light. And we pray this, Father, that we might glorify Christ better in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.